Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild. I'm a powerlifter, highland games athlete, and I am currently smoking a entire goat hole. So wow. I've been, up, nice. I've been up most of the night doing it. So. Oh, I'll- I'll be right over. Maybe not. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, associate professor at the Kerrig Institute, and still hanging out at home. Yeah, as are so many of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all the talk uh, behind the <laughs> scenes with the professors about, you know, here we go, you know, so... Yeah, and I think I I have another academic conference, the ISCN, so International Society of Clinical um, Neuroscience. They postponed their meetings normally in May, so they postponed it to November, and now they just postponed it to May of next year. Yeah. So I have a feeling even fall meetings may start getting postponed. I talked to someone about even the ISSN meeting in September, so I know they're trying to figure that out too, because like you said, Lonnie, if you have to go back and teach students. A lot of places are saying that faculty can't travel now, right? Because that's obviously a risk if they go somewhere else, even if it's an academic conference, because now they have to come back and they're exposed to more students. And yeah, it just makes it even more messy. Yeah. Universities are just going to have to bite the bullet because so many of them have an in-person model, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, And so, you know, we're cutting the size of our classrooms in half and all that kind of stuff. Depends, you know, on the on, partly on the professor or whatever and the state guidelines and stuff. But, uh, you know, I probably get a lot of crap for this, but I anticipate there'll probably be a, enough clusters and outbreaks that we'll end up back online at some point this fall. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Schools have a, a very sensitive, obviously they're risk averse for liability reasons and, and all that totally. kind of stuff, you know. So, and, and sports are often getting canceled or limited, um, you know, and that's obviously – college football is like a lifeblood for getting yeah. getting students enrolled and stuff they're there for the football but you know they're let's be honest they're not there just for the academics uh anyway yeah. and even revenue that you know like big d1 universities bring in from you know football it's, oh revenue yeah, for sure oof. yeah tuition that's dollars brutal. and revenue yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah yeah, and you're, I just, you know, again, I might get crap for this, but I don't think it's a good idea to fill, fill stadiums right now. I mean, Oof. why don't we just have the yeah. discipline to lay low for a year, you know? Um, at least we have the technology, unlike back in 1918, to roll out some vaccines and figure that business out. So we'll see. I, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, everybody, we are just going to do a, a mail and news episode. We've got it building up on us. Um, Strength and Muscle Sport News. Oh, quick Iron Radio news. If you might want to uh, join us for our next taste test on YouTube, um, we are going to taste test different kinds of jerky coming up over the next two months. And this next one is sort of the uh, quote-unquote plant version Um Again, uh, fungi aren't necessarily plants. Well, they're really not. So, but it's a mushroom-based jerky. Uh, it's called shrooms, just original, uh, and that's what we're <laughs> we're gonna give that a shot um, 
in an upcoming taste test. Maybe we get Mike to offer some comments like in the text or the show notes about that as far as uh, – you know, because I thought there's an interesting angle, angle with the whole myconutrition and all that kind of stuff, you know, and what, what might mushrooms offer. You know, Phil can give his thoughts about – whether or not it stands up to real jerky. <laughs> and we'll, He's excited for this one, I can tell. Uh, yeah. He's been, yeah, we'll find waiting out. Waiting in anticipation. That's why he really couldn't sleep last night. I got the bag right in front of me here. Yeah. I've, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's going to be it sneaking yet. it, sneaking no, it beforehand. I'm holding, off. I'm holding off. That's it, discipline. Uh, all right, let's, let's do a little bit of, uh, like, question and mail from around the internet. Let me start with this one. It's sort of a clinical thing from uh, Tim. He says, I'm going to get a physical soon, and they're going to do a blood draw and a serum metabolic panel. I was told that creatine supplements will suggest that I have kidney disease. Any thoughts? Uh, Dr. Nelson. First, oh, let me, let me back yeah. up. Yes, Dr. Nelson, Dr. Lowry, but not medical doctor. This isn't medical yes. advice. <laughs> it's like what well, I think it was Darren Willoughby said, I'm, I'm not I'm the real doctor. I'm a Ph.D. <laughs> That's funny. But this is not medical advice. Just let's just get that out there right now. But what are your thoughts about, uh, you know, a doctor misinterpreting maybe because you're supplementing creatine, I guess, or. Yeah, I mean, the clients I work with because they're getting blood work done either on their own that they're going to review with their physician or through their physician's office. And so a lot of times I look at it just in terms of health parameters, again, not trying to diagnose any pathologies or be their physician or anything like that. Um, but yeah, you can see higher renal markers if they're using creatine monohydrate as a supplement. So usually what I advise people is that you know, about 48 hours before you're going to have blood work done, which is... You want to do everything to replicate the same state each time. So not a lot of heavy lifting because obviously that can break down some muscle tissue and can give you some wonky readings in the in the panels with that. Uh, usually if they're really worried, you know, potentially a little bit lower protein-ish for a day or two or at least the day before. And if they're using creatine, probably not to use it for about two days before. Um, most of the time, <clears throat> that's going to save you a conversation with your physician about stuff they may or may not be educated on because most of the time they're not educated on that kind of stuff in in med school and then if you do have something that is really high or just kind of you know definitely out of range then you know it's probably not from those particular things so you definitely want to follow up at that point yeah um, the downside is if you did a heavy training session beforehand your protein's super high and you're taking creatine yeah, you go in, you have a panel done, you see some wonky numbers, you know, you're probably, I would recommend that they talk to their doc and just redo it again. Don't take creatine, don't lift heavy for one or two days beforehand, do lower protein. If everything goes down, then yeah, it's probably related to, to one of those, not too much to worry. Um, so most of the time it just kind of saves them uh, another conversation and another blood test. And then, like I said, if something really is kind of out of range, you know, then you're thinking that there may be something going on. You need to do some further tests. Yeah. yeah, And save you some money, too, right? More tests are going to yeah. be more money. I mean, you know, we have that sort of suffering for profit medical health care yeah. system these days. So, yeah. In fact, sometimes when I go to my doctor, I just did this past week just for like an annual thing. And, and he's like, I'd like to run this and this and this. I'm like, you know what? My insurance is not as good now because, you know, it changes constantly depending on you know what either uh, the university does or my wife get changes her job whatever so i'm like can we not do this this and this he goes okay you know those were just curiosity i'm like you, you don't satisfy your curiosity with my wallet man <laughs> you know yeah. uh, so if, if it's just kind of random stuff if it's stuff that needs to be done sure uh, and this is a good example of that you're right save the conversation save save the money uh, by just not taking creatine for a week or something and then uh you know it's good also a good point that it's our population is weird right so we carry yeah. extra muscle mass so that could raise some things that might look uh quote unquote bad on a renal panel like if you have high creatine B1 in your blood high. yeah high yeah. bun then that might look like it is but that's because you just have you know you're swallowing creatine and you have lots of muscles bro 
Uh, now, having said that, yeah, we don't want to overlook any kind of real underlying kidney disease. So you just have to, yeah, um, I like your approach, honestly. You're not trying to manipulate the test so much as no. you are trying to replicate what you did last time and not do anything that's, again, our population's already weird. Don't make it that much weirder. Um, yeah, you're just trying to do stuff that we know based on research, you know, you can get false positives uh, for doing that. Um, yeah. And then I always ask them, you know, back when I had full health care insurance right now, since I run my business and just teach, I only have major medical. So I have to pay for everything out of pocket. Mm -hmm. I always ask, OK, how much does that cost? And like you said, Lonnie, okay, do we really need this? Or what is your opinion on this? And if we really need it, then great. I'll find a way to pay for it. But if it's something that would be interesting, meh, we may want to talk about that a little more. <laughs> right. Well, you know, Phil, you've you've gone in and had high blood lipids before. Mm -hmm. I've gone in and had high blood pressure. I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have had any. Like, sometimes I wake up, I'll have some kind of, you know, dietary stimulant type stuff, supplements. Mm. Oh, maybe I shouldn't do that, you know. So you don't end up, yeah, going back in or, God no, God forbid, getting diagnosed and now you have, you're pre-existing for something that re isn't true, <laughs> yeah. you know, because uh, nobody yeah. needs I get a little bit paranoid about some of that stuff, too, when I go in through a physician, especially when you have to kind of go out and get your own health care. Um, I'm not going to take any stimulants. I'm not going to take creatine. I'm going to do all the things that I know may result in a false positive. Yeah. Partially because I don't want that on my record either. You know, I get That's what I mean. overly worried about it that someone says in the future, oh, but what about this day? It came in and you're borderline hypertensive. Your glucose was, was high. Your lipids were wonky and your BUN is high. It's like, oh, whoops, I ate that morning and exercised the day before and took creatine. Mm. They're not going to understand that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you know, Phil goes on extreme diets by any standard to pack on massive yeah. amounts of weight, and that's going to mess you up, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Once, in fact, sometimes you get these sort of um, inattentive, we'll say, assistance, you know, in the in the clinic. When I uh, in the past, when I've donated blood, for example, they will they, they kind of like look at last time. And then if I was if my blood pressure looked a little high, then they give me numbers that are just BS. Then I go home and check or the next day I'm at a, a, a doctor's office and check and it's it's nowhere near that number. So either I have white coat hypertension when I walk in there, which I really <laughs> doubt because I don't care uh, or they're being a little sloppy. Right. And they're looking at last time's numbers instead of carefully, you know, mm -hmm. taking the reading that and that's unacceptable. Um, so, yeah, yeah, don't get yourself in that scenario, because I think it becomes sort of a rabbit hole that you start tumbling down, you know. So. Yeah. And another tip, if people are borderline, especially with blood pressure, I got this from my buddy Luke Lehman from Muscle Nerds is. Just buy a cheap Omron blood pressure cuff from Amazon. They're probably 50, 70 bucks. I think I got one for 65 bucks. They're completely automated now. They're pretty damn accurate. Um, so I've even sent that to some clients who are kind of, you know, borderline and be like, hey, just each morning get up and let's just take a reading and see where you're at. Yeah. You know, and that gives them a way to, to self monitor and see if they can make changes or, if they just had one reading that was out of range and they do it for a week and all the readings are pretty good, okay, you know, then you can go back to your doctor too and say, hey, here's the thing I did, here's the readings I got, and, and have an actual discussion instead of having them potentially putting you on some meds off of one reading that may be kind of wonky. Or if yeah. it's super high, then you go back and have the discussion of, okay, what do we do about it? But mm -hmm. I always like to have at least a little bit more data instead of just that one data point on especially something you can kind of get on your own for pretty cheap. Yeah. And for me, it's a validity issue. I mean, I rather have a yeah. good quality automated reading than some of, you know, these uh, assistants that are just kind of blowing you off, you know, and they're not yeah. carefully look. Cause you know, you can look at the dial, you can feel as you're sort of listening for those carotid cough sounds, you can kind of see. And I'm like, dude, I just watched that needle. I could feel that. What you just yeah. said is more like last <laughs> time than what just happened. Now, I know I'm not listening with the stethoscope, but and I shouldn't be critiquing, I guess, but I'd rather just have a good quality automated reading at that point. Anyway. Uh, Phil, when I you're really heavy. Is even doing it now. Yeah. yeah. For high blood pressure. I'm curious about when you're heavy, because body weight and the way that 
powerlifters and bodybuilders bulk up, a lot of times that your blood pressure just starts shooting up. Are you are you hypertensive when you're these real these heavy? Last two times are the first time ever that I was. Yeah, I was a little bit hypertensive once mm-hmm. I got way up there. But before that, I had. Hmm. I'm old now. <laughs> it's a good point. It's kind of a combination, isn't aren't it? Aren't as stretchy. Yeah, not as well, lubed yeah. up and stretchy as you once were. Um. But yeah, no. I mean, other than that, not not a lot of problems at all. Yeah, yeah. Your blood lipids and your blood pressure. I, when I would get over over two fifteen, I would become like one forty over ninety, like mild hypertension. Oh wow! And it, it was just like a flip and a switch. And then I went under two ten, back to you know, I'm like one seventeen over sixty eight. I mean, it's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, body weight's a big deal, and I think not. It's not just sort of the dietary stimulant stuff, but it's the pre workouts and whatnot. It's Sometimes when you force your body weight way up there, yeah. Uh, plus age, you're right. I'm not sure a 45 year old body likes bulking in the same way a 25 year old body yeah, does. No, you know, no, it hates it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mention that because I even recently I've gone down in body weight and probably come to the realization that um. Probably the highest I ever was was 245, and I'm probably never going to get, never say never, but I don't ever plan to even get remotely close to that again either. You know, yeah. so I think at some point you're kind of like, well, yeah, probably just staying leaner the rest of my life is probably going to be a better thing overall, yeah. too. Yeah. It just, it seems to be a lot harder to go both up and taking me a lot longer to get back down, too. And then you wonder about, you know, health risks and everything else also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think unless you're going to lean hard into, like, uh, anabolics and GH, <laughs> I don't see, yeah. like, yeah, somebody post-50 making ridiculous muscular gains and getting lean <laughs> over the course of the same yeah. year. You know, it's, yeah. yeah, unlikely. Okay, Phil, um, you said you saw one or two things on Facebook there about questions. Yeah, there was one guy, Jacob Styana. Um, how do you guys track workouts? My old spreadsheet needs a makeover. However, all the apps I've looked at don't seem to handle training plans. They only they only allow logging on the go. I would like an app, for example, that I can do an eight week training in advance. It would be amazing to plan percentages. However, it's not a deal breaker. Any ideas? I I went on there and told them I still just use a notebook, <laughs> you know, and I have all my people bring notebooks, so. Um, as far as apps go, I am definitely not the one to ask, but I figured you guys might know. Mike, what do you think? I, I don't really do this sort of thing. I mean, because what I do myself yeah. is is notebook-based as well, uh, frankly. Yeah. Um, what I do is it depends. So if for clients, I use online software. Uh, I mainly use TrueCoach because I'm in there creating custom programs for everyone. Um, if they're running through like a group coaching or the flex diet and they're primarily more on the nutrition recovery side or they're doing some type of challenge, I'll actually use uh, software from Coach Catalyst. So I had some custom software created for the flex diet. Once people graduate, we've got all the 40 action items and they can just populate it pretty easily um, in there. The downside about uh, both of those is they don't necessarily give you crazy spreadsheets on load and volume and all that kind of stuff, which I'm not that worried about because I'm tracking all their other metrics of their performance and their row times and everything else. And I'm putting overload into their programs, so they don't necessarily need to worry about it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's some other software. I want to say buddy of mine, Steve Olson, I think used to run Excel training designs or uh, I probably slaughtered his name, but there are a couple programs out there. I think it's Strength Coach Pro might do that. Um, so you can find them. And I've got friends who've made just crazy complicated uh, spreadsheets that did it. Uh, I don't know. I've done it in the past <clears throat> for some clients, and something always came up, right? There was no way to perfectly predict an eight-week cycle. We were always making some modifications. So I kind of dropped all of it. And what I do now is I just program rep ranges, And then once you get stronger and you end up going out of that rep range, so say it's 8 to 12 rep range, then just go up to the next load, and then you've kind of got an auto-regulatory load built into it. Um, For myself, I do use a super old program called Adaptifier, which it works good. I wouldn't recommend it just because it's not maintained anymore. 
the interface is super crude, but what I can do is just put in uh, PRs that I've had for volume load and density in there, and then I can, I've got stuff tracked in there back to 2011. So now I don't put all my training programs in there. Like if I have something I think is pretty close to what a PR is, I'll enter it in there. But day to day, I just write stuff down in a notebook and the back four pages are just listings of, you know, PRs of the main lifts that I'm tracking. Mm -hmm. And if I'm always kind of going up in those, whether that's, you know, volume or density or intensity, then yeah, I I know I'm pretty good and, and making progress. So I don't think it's anything you need to get too crazy about but you can get pretty far with the notebook yep. and i don't like being on my phone in the gym <laughs> like i think that just i get it and if you've got a program and i have clients to do that they like having everything on their phone to see what they do next i get it but i'm just kind of old school where a lot of times I don't even bring my phone into the gym and i just write stuff down yeah what do you guys do that's it man i just write it down in a notebook i have a deal at home i send pdfs for clients like yeah. here's your month you know here's a month pdf for my distance clients my other people i write in their notebook so and if they want to store that info on a computer somewhere fine i just need the notebook you know they bring, <laughs> me, bring me your notebook so yep yeah i just have a little training log that i always fill out right now and partly because of what we were saying before i don't have like uh this might bore a lot of our listeners but i don't have like big strength prs that's not what i'm after so much comes back to goals i think maybe one day we should revisit because so much of it comes down to i mean i wish i had a quarter every time phil or mike you said well it depends you know it depends on someone's (laughs) goals well that means you better give a damn lot of thought to your goals are they realistic are they quantifiable all that kind of stuff um so, yeah, I think a lot of it depends. Right now, I'm just sort of monitoring as I go so I can look for upwards and downward trends. You know, like, wow, my hunger or my motivation has been sagging. Is there a reason for that? You know, kind of thing. Or, And, yeah, the performance is too. But when your joints just won't have heavy, heavy loads, uh, especially intensity times volume, I'm not sure. You know, I'm kind of struggling with where I go with that as far as goals. Yeah. Um, so... I know that sounds wishy-washy, and it kind of pisses me off, too, but I'm going to have to try to decide what I want to do with that. And I also like the notebook. When I'm in the gym, like if I, you know, for example, we were gone for three and a half weeks. I just did some safety bar squats yesterday for the first time in literally like four weeks. I can just flip back and go, okay, where was I about when I left? Mm -hmm. Okay, where was I, you know, three, four weeks before that? Because I don't want to start at the exact same load when I left. That's probably a recipe for disaster. Um, but, oh, when's the last time I took a big break? Oh, okay. Where did I start back? Oh, all right. So I have some idea of, mm-hmm. you know, where I was for a comparison to a similar time point, not just my all-out top-end performance. And I can just flip through a notebook where, it, I don't know, I'm too old school, like trying to flip through everything on a computer to find mm-hmm. that just yes. annoys the crap out of me. Yep. <laughs> what well, grading is the same way. Like I, I hate yeah. grading stuff on a screen. Oh, you can use a little red, like a digital pen or a stylus. No, no. I want a hard copy so I can hold this in my hands and look at it. Same thing with my workout log. You're right, though. It's nice just to go back and you kind of look at trends, not just one offs, yeah. but you know, where am I? Like, oh wow, you know, uh, like if I put like two and a quarter on the bar in the bench and that feels real heavy, I'm like, oh. I can look back a couple months ago and say, oh, look, if I was doing five sets of five with that, maybe I should up that number, you know. And I know those numbers aren't exciting our powerlifting listeners, but <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> My <laughs> joints are screwed. So anyway, yeah, it does. The trends in the, in the logging, it's, logging is really helpful. And it's a good question about do I do this digitally or, yeah. or how, what do I prefer Um, And last part, too, I think it's good for accountability. Um, So for online clients, I tell them just log it in a notebook and then, you know, stuff that I want to see from you. Yeah, you're going to have to transfer it online and send it to me. Um, But, you know, I'll log my HRV in the morning. I'll log other things I'm doing also. It's like you've talked about, Lonnie. I can look back at recovery factors. I can kind of look back at, you know, trends of what things went good or didn't go good. Or if I'm doing a max test or a 2K row or something, I can look back to the last time I did it and 
you know, under what conditions, you know, was it? And that allows you to kind of pick out trends over time too, where, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but online, I think it's a little harder to get some of that other kind of granularity out of it. And you're not spending your whole time, you know, 40 minutes a day trying to log what you did in the gym, which is not useful. Yeah. I like the analog too. Like you said, it can be have a certain granularity to it. You can notice things like things are in your face. You don't have to go pull up something, right? You're not yeah. browsing for it. It's right there. Um, and sometimes that visual reminder, that's the accountability. That's one of the reasons I still do a log, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm not after a 700 pound squat one day on the distant horizon. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, that's, I, it's not one of my goals, but the logging does keep me like, oh my God, you know, I only lifted once this week during yeah. lockdown or something like that. And that's kind of a, that'll hold you accountable. Yeah. So, um, yep. I, anything else, Phil, or is that the, I, I just didn't, there's one on high protein diets, increased cardiovascular risk by activating mTOR, um, to suppress mitophagy, uh, new paper in natural metabolism shows high protein diets commonly utilized for weight loss. Blah, blah, blah. Um, they just wanted your guys's opinions on this. If you had any, Mm. There's was no... that a mechanistic study? I can try to hop in there and see if I can find it real quick. Yeah, maybe pull it up. Mechanistically, just says mechanistically we found amino acids exaggerate mitophage. It is on PubMed. So. Yeah. You know what? It sounds to me like a cautionary thing about protein. And I, I, I guess it's good that we get spot checked every once in a while. But this is why one of these days I'm going to write that article called What May I Eat? Right, because you can't eat that, you can't eat carbs, and people are always trying to find some new micro mechanism for why you can't eat protein either. Well, damn, what am I supposed to eat then? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, is that the jive some... that you're getting from it, you guys? That it's a it's a cautionary tale about overdoing protein. I mean, the stuff that I've seen before in that area is is the mechanism kind of true, right? So if you're constantly walking mTOR to the moon all the time are you going to have downshifts in autophagy to some degree yeah does that necessarily mean that it's a bad quote-unquote thing not necessarily um, and a lot of the stuff i've seen from some presenters is that well we know this doesn't function so well in cancer right so cancer one of the reasons that it goes crazy is you have cells that are supposed to die when they're programmed to die, and they don't, so they tend to keep replicating, and so you've got this mass or things that are going kind of out of whack that way. But, I mean, the research I've seen on cancer, it seems like it's bizarro world. Like, things you want to do to prevent cancer, you may not want to do them if you have cancer. Yeah, I'm not a cancer researcher at all, so that's not my expertise of area. Um so I think people just tend to overextend some mechanisms that are actually true to a, quote, logical conclusion that may not necessarily be true. Yep. And we also forget, too, that exercise uh, does dramatically increase autophagy. Right. So autophagy is the cellular cleaning out of some of these misshapen or misfolded proteins. Um, so anyway, I think there is something to it. If you get on the fasting rabbit hole, there's I haven't seen any good data showing how long you should do a fast, even if your goal is to reduce the risk of cancer, you know, should it be a one day fast for 24 hours or three days or a quarterly seven day fast, or I haven't seen any good data on that either. So mechanistically, maybe, um, for clients I have, if they're really worried about that and they're kind of on the body composition performance route, I will have them do a longer fast than one day a week you know, maybe 19 to 24 hours. Most of that is uh, lowering insulin, increase your body's ability to use fat. Um, I don't have them use any amino acids during that point. So if there is any increased autophagy there, especially during that short period of time, we may get some benefits uh, from that too. It's not enough. It's going to destroy all their gains. So if they're kind of looking for the bleeding edge combination of those two, that's kind of what I've done for quite a few years. Again, I can't point to a randomized control trial that says it's going to be best though yeah yeah the whole mechanism thing um sagan used to talk about paradoxers you know which are Mm -hmm. people who come up with elaborate mechanisms for something as if they lead somewhere and sometimes these mechanisms are completely nonsense 
you know, they don't amount to anything, uh, you know, that sort of thing. To me, it's in what tissue and why. And I mean, mTOR, I mean, I'm very interested in metformin, that old cheap diabetes drug. I've seen it do amazing things with body comp and people who are insulin resistant in the fat in the past. But, you know, one of the ways that it works, but like apparently like you'll see guys like Ray Kurzweil and people like that that are very interested in metformin as a longevity med, partly because it it stops new tumor growth and it blocks mTOR. And so, okay, well, lifters are usually liking stimulus of mTOR in skeletal muscle. Right. But do you want that happening in certain other tissues? And, you know, I'm actually starting to lean more and more toward, you know, something that would sound ghastly to most bodybuilders. But I'm interested in something like metformin, even if it blocks mTOR. Now, somebody might say, well, then you're not going to get big, bro. Well, I'm also not going to get cancer and live an extra 10 years. So, yeah, this is it can get very confusing. And I think you do have to be careful We've talked about getting too reductionist, right, with a mechanism because what what percentage of the whole picture is that going to lead to, you know, and, and again, in what tissue and all that kind of stuff. So that's sticky business. Yeah. yeah. It's always amazing to me that we have all these questions about, say, metformin, and that's an old drug. It's been around yeah. for a long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, safety profile, generally pretty good. I mean, there's been millions of doses that have been sent out, but we're still not even sure exactly what other effects it has, much less all the the new drugs that are coming out. So lots of questions. Yeah, it's always fascinating to me when a, a certain diet or drug especially, like you come up with some off-label thing that it does better than the intended target. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Uh, Oops. It, it just shows the complexity of the system, you know. It's like, oh, we didn't know it did that. mTOR itself, if you look at it as a molecule, is obviously mTOR1, mTOR2, and it's a pretty friggin' huge molecule. It's not like it's a tiny little thing that's an on and off switch. I took a whole class once, but the guy was uh, looking at x-ray diffraction technology of the mTOR molecule was his basically his life's work, and so we had a a week of lectures just on the structure of mTOR, and I don't remember much from it, but I remember walking out going, oh, that's way more complicated than I thought it was. Right. <laughs> if that's your takeaway, right, then, yeah, for Facebookers, I'm thinking even if they're trained in the sciences or something, it's like maybe, you know, come to a similar conclusion, right? Like, yeah. all right, well, that's yeah. a big complicated mess. I'm not going to go on a low-protein diet because of whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, I do have just real quick a comment uh, about one more uh, question, and then after the break, everybody, we'll just I'll I'll, I'll going to shotgun some studies because we've got several here. Uh, there was somebody who was concerned about our joking around episode last week, um, and again, I just want to try to for, for time get to this quickly. But um, we are kind of it was tongue in cheek about the bro science thing, right? I appreciate the passion of someone's like that kind of pissed me off. And some of us are trying to do good things. Listen, I, I get it. Right. I I'm glad there are people trying to have a little candle of light, you know, in this ocean of pseudoscience and darkness in the nutrition and fitness worlds. Um, I might've mentioned this before, but I recently did a little search for, uh, top nutrition podcasts. And although there were some bright spots on that list, man, a big portion of this top nutrition podcast are ones I would not listen to. The people just, they're like excited amateurs or they're, they're not trained enough or, you know, they, they might even intensely believe in something. It's not always just commercial, but it's, you know, it's just not evidence-based. Um, obviously, when we are joking around, that was tongue-in-cheek. The stuff about being free was about free prefab templates, right, or programs. Um, and I think what those do oftentimes is they are meant to hook consumers in some t- kind of you know cult of personality or something. Um, they can be well-meaning. Again, they're not always about uh, money, but they, that's equally dangerous. So um, I, I just wanted to say about this, I think this might be an opportunity, something we've talked about before. Um, we covered this a long time ago about red flags and fraud. And the same thing can be said of the, the red flags of bro science. Now, a red flag doesn't automatically make a claim bro science, right? But it should make you think about, you know, is there something else that seems off here? Uh, I mean, first of all, Iron Radio is free. So if something's free and we say that's a red flag, that doesn't automatically mean it's bad, 
or we'd be saying that we're useless or we're bad. Uh, So, I mean, you know, there's that. I mean, Iron Radio is free. But when you hear something that's, you know, I do it like this, bro, like N equals one, you know, if it's hearsay or folklore or you hear somebody who – if they're not educated on something and they're excited about it, you have to think that they could be missing big parts of something that they're just not aware of. I've talked to a lot of excited lifters in the past who were, they could really talk a good game about a narrow uh, subject. Uh, but if they let them talk long enough, and you're like, oh, that's not exactly how that works. Like they start, you start to realize that years of experience or time spent at university things get scaffolded they get built upon the other stuff once you prove yourself in that and you don't just have these huge this like house of cards sometimes i'm not saying that's what the listener was doing but if you see something that's cherry-picked or if it's hidden behind a mask of being secret ancient or foreign and not amenable to testing Mm. you know or if they use a lot of baffling medical talk and scientific talk that's a problem Right, that can be a problem. All this, these things are red flags, and you just have to be careful. And this brings me back to the Sagan thing about paradoxers. Right, that used to be a big thing. Like pseudoscience, people would spin their own elaborate explanations for something, um, and you see a lot of that online. We are Sagan even says we are awash these days in paradoxers. Right, they'll they'll just weave this fascinating ta- fabric of fascination about something. And it may or may not actually be going anywhere. Sounds impressive. Anyway, so uh, that was tongue-in-cheek. And I just want everybody to realize that. You know, it, when we give advice like that. And we're not ripping on people who are actually trying to be that light of science in the darkness. It's just everybody's too eager these days to give a tutorial about something. And I think we need to be careful, you know. Yeah, and I get that. It, it's... I mean, it's hard, the amount of information that gets, you know, put out. And even listening to people who have good intentions, good, solid scientific background. I mean, we've all been in conferences or in the gym where I've seen two legitimate experts in the field talking about the same study that I know both of them read. One of them was from their lab arguing about the results. (laughs) Like they didn't. I'm like, well, oh, my gosh, like. These people know what they're talking about, and they couldn't even come to an agreement on it. You know, so yep. even in that case, it's it's hard. And you know, humans like simple stories. That's kind of how our brains are wired. And if someone has a very nice, elegant story that seems to kind of logically make sense, you kind of go, "Oh, well, that sounds good." You know, so we're kind of wired to think that way too. Yeah. I guess my point is, like, if you read one or two studies or something that's been cherry-picked to like present an argument, you just have to yeah. be careful. That's how lawyers work, not scientists. And if if you've gone through years and years of training, you're almost forced to look at, read a broader amount of the science, pro or con, and it humbles you, right? And you start to under-conclude after a while instead of over-conclude to make a point, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the hard part about the cherry picking thing is you would only know that if you actually know and understand the field to know the references that they left out. (laughs) No, exactly. Right. If it's a new area, you're like, damn, that looks like a pretty solid argument. They got 17 PubMed references. It must be true. But again, you wouldn't know that unless you know, oh, wait a minute. But I know this field because I've read the literature and they left out these 10 studies that say the opposite. Yep. So it makes it even people using research it makes it look more compelling than what it may actually be right worst case scenario we've all seen this for years in advertisements back in the muscle magazine days but lying by omission right yep (laughs) all right um we're late in the program already let me we're gonna go to break when we come back i'm just gonna shotgun four studies uh on everything from carb handling to uh, this new molecule derived from citrus that could reverse obesity, apparently, Uh, to the resistance of weight gain. Like, what genes make you resistant to weight gain? That's interesting. And then one thing on CBD. So stay tuned. Hello, dear ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto 
I don't do it because, I mean, look at me, come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text the Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it, do it now! Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast Airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, in about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, we're back, everybody. It's Phil and Mike and Lonnie. Just going to do a quick research rundown. This first one is about carb handling. Um, BMJ Open, Diabetes Research Care. This is brand new, July of this year. 30-minute post-load plasma glucose levels during an oral glucose tolerance test predict the risk of future type 2 diabetes. Now, I this is from... My own lit review, Mike and I were just talking about trying to get a balance of literature. So uh, I've been doing a lot of glucose tolerance tests after coffee ingestion. So basically, you just give someone a 50 or a 75 or 100 gram challenge of carbohydrates, and you see how well they clear it uh, over a two-hour period. This particular one, they said the purpose was to investigate the associations of 30-minute post-load, right, post-challenge plasma glucose, so blood sugar levels, during an OGTT, an oral glucose tolerance test. Uh, what they're going to suggest here is this is about the peak, everybody. A lot of people will go 30 or 60 minutes. They'll peak. So your fasting blood sugar might be like 80, and then you'll shoot up to like, depending on the challenge, what the dose of carb, you might shoot up to like 130, 140, 150 milligrams per deciliter. And then, it, you know, and then if you're not diabetic, it falls back down by the two-hour mark. Anyway, so they're suggesting this 30-minute one might be the big deal. They looked at uh, nearly 3,000 uh, Japanese community-dwelling residents. Uh, they did not have diabetes. They were middle-aged to older, so 40-plus. Um, about 2,200 of them got a 75-gram uh, carb challenge, glucose tolerance test in a fasting state. They took measurements at 0, 30, and 120 minutes. And if you're interested in ever doing this, uh, this is the kind of thing, frankly, some people could do themselves. I would do it with some kind of advice, um, but, you know, simple glucometer thing. But fasting and two-hour mark is where we usually rely on as far as, it, you know, what someone's fasting blood sugar, are they a good carb controller? And at the two-hour mark, have they cleared it pretty well? Well, this is suggesting the 30 minutes a big deal. During the follow-up, 
275 people actually experienced type 2 diabetes. Uh, and indeed, the 30-minute mark was significantly associated with their risk of developing uh, diabetes. So p-value 0.01. Uh, it says the multivariate adjusted HR was 8.41 uh, when you compared the highest versus the lowest quartile. In, in other words, the people that were the highest in blood sugar versus way down the people at the bottom of the scale when you, you kind of chop it into fours. Anyway, so they made some adjustments for fasting blood sugar and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, the 30-minute mark was a big deal. So if you ever do have a glucose challenge like that where you take – and again, it depends on a, a couple of different things. When we do it, of course, we give them the coffee, get them in a certain state, then challenge them. And we only use 50 gram of carbohydrates. Um, but yeah, that, that peak, that early peak, if you will, that 30-minute mark might be a bigger deal than just your fasting blood sugar or your two-hour blood sugar. So just sort of a practical tip, I think, if anybody's interested in their own uh, carb handling, right, carb sensitivity. Um, next molecule in oranges and tangerines could reverse obesity. I got this from IFT. Oh, let me back up. Let me give the author's name from that, uh, British medical journal. Um, that was Hirakawa and colleagues. If you want to go look that up. Okay. So this molecule in orange and tangerines could reverse obesity. Researchers at Western university identified a molecule found in origins and tangerines that could hold the key to reversing obesity and regressing plaque buildup in your arteries. Now, we all know, as a co-host, I can tell you, we've been around long enough. Mm. They've looked at citrus <laughs> stuff before, like bitter orange, synephrine, these yep. adrenaline-like compounds. Well, this one is nobilitin, and I need to look into this more. Mm. In fact, just as a sidebar, Mark, Mike, are you familiar with any of the nuances of nobilitin? No, I am not. Okay, um... So nobilitin was given to mice that were fed a high-fat, high-cholesterol diet. The result uh, was increased leanness and reduced levels of insulin resistance compared to the critters that did not receive nobilitin. Now, the problem with this is that they're not sure exactly how this works. One hypothesis was that this nobilitin, uh, just to spell it for people if you want to go read about this more, N-O-B-I-L-E-T-I-N, nobilitin. One hypothesis is, what it, it, is that it worked through AMP kinase, so a particular pathway um, that's linked to energy production and blocking fat manufacture in the body and that sort of thing. However, the effects of nobilitin were evident even in mice that had been genetically modified to remove AMP kinase. So, okay, it's obviously not just that mechanism. So uh, then they go on to say studies in humans will determine, you know, more. Uh, so... Keep your eyes peeled. Every time I do something like this, an early stage mouse, you know, rodent study, mm. we always say the same thing. Watch for this to start popping up in supplements. It probably already is. You yep. know, um, before we have human studies and all that kind of stuff. Because I can tell you, I learned my lesson back when I was doing my dissertation and CLA was melting fat off yeah. of rodents, <laughs> melting. And it does so little to people. <laughs> yeah. So... Anyway, nobilitin, interesting, yet another molecule. Am I saying go eat oranges and limes and, and lemons? No, um, but you might want to start looking into nobilitin and see who's selling it and why. And, you know, some of our listeners have pharmacy and, you know, nutrition background and stuff. You can send anything you might find maybe. Who knows? You know, it, it's sort of a picture down the way. You might say, Lowry, why are you talking about rat studies? I don't care, mice. Yeah, but this is the early stage stuff that might lead to something down the road. You know, of course, the problem is that supplement companies get a hold of it and they start selling it now. So. Mm -hmm. And just looking, it appears to have all sorts of interesting effects on metabolism from GLUT1 to GLUT4 or AMPK to all sorts of different functions. Now, I haven't pulled all those to see if they're in humans or mice, so there might be lots of mice studies. Okay. <laughs> yeah, obviously, it's multiple mechanisms because what they thought it was focused on the pathway must not be that. So, but, yeah. and yet the results remain, you know, there's leaner critters. So, um, jamming through this, I thought this was an interesting angle and I, I've not really thought about this that much, except maybe Mike and I will talk about some of the, um, you know, those old Ansel key studies about gain and loss and regulation, but 
This is from Nature Review's Endocrinology. So this is a uh, hardcore paper, but with a neat twist. Deciphering the genetics of resistance to weight gain. So the idea is some people are genetically resistant to weight gain. Now, that might sound like blasphemy to Phil. Like, oh my God, that guy, how am I going to work with that one? You know? Yeah. Um, and again, usually when you hear weight gain, though, in the literature, you know, you have to think body comp. You know, are they resistant to muscle mass accretion? Are they resistant to fat mass? Typically, I think they're referring to fat mass. But this is from Claire Greenhill. It says, very few studies looking at the genetic underpinnings uh, of weight gain loss look at thinness. So they weren't looking at fat people and what genes they might have. And I'm not using fat as a – it's not a value judgment. It's just over fat. It's a biological tissue observation. This one looked at thin people's genes. A new study published in Cell has now identified ALK as a key gene involved in resistance to weight gain and hence thinness. So hmm. researchers began by analyzing data from a, a big, well-phenotyped uh, biobank, the Estonian Genome Center of the University of Tartu. Uh, people with low BMI, so the, the thin people, they defined um, as being in the sixth percentile. So they're not playing games here, right? No, these are, no, these are way low, <laughs> bottom six, you know, uh, sixth percentile. Um, and took, t they took a good hard look at their genes. So the, the genome-wide association analysis identified multiple genetic loci that were associated with thinness. One of the ones that they focused on was this ALK, which is apparently mutated in very thin people compared to the regular version of the gene in normal weight people. So, uh, and again, I'm not a genetics expert by any stretch, so... If anybody wants to correct me, I'm just interpreting this the best I can. Further experiments in mice revealed that genetic deletion of ALK resulted in thin mice that were resistant to diet-induced obesity compared to control animals. See, so now they're not just saying weight gain. They're saying obesity. Um, so they look for the gene. They identify a possible one, right? Then they do a knockout model. And again, that's why we don't do this in people. You can't breed people to be missing a gene. <laughs> And in fact, yeah, they were um, quite different from control animals. Researchers also used MRI to assess the body composition of the mice. ALK negative negative mice fed a high fat diet, had normal lean mass, but reduced adiposity. They also had smaller white adipocytes, so typical fat cells that control mice when fed a high fat diet. They also had, uh, again, the negative negative mice that have really had this knocked out. Uh, increased energy expenditure. So they're really honing in on this gene. Very interesting. And of course, it makes you think with the way that uh, a lot of uh, athletes and bodybuilders and whatnot, they think about performance enhancement and gene doping is a thing. We've done episodes on gene doping before. You know, is this something that they're going to want to tinker with down the road? It says, quote, in mice, we could then also map the site of action in the brain and experimentally explore the mechanism explains author uh, Joseph Penninger. These expression analyses show that ALK was expressed in hypothalamic neurons that have a role in controlling energy expenditure via the sympathetic control of adipose tissue lipolysis. So now we're, we're bringing in the sympathetic, right, the autonomic fight or flight nervous system. It says ALK is functioning through a brain adipose tissue crosstalk regulating the release or local accumulation of noradrenaline in adipose tissue and thus ultimately affecting one's body weight, says author Neil Geldof. So interesting that they're looking at lean people. The take-home, I guess, looking at lean people's genes now, targeting which ones are potential candidates, then knocking them out in mice. That is knocking out the regular version of the gene, not the thin mutant, and saying, oh, look, yeah, that actually... That might be, in fact, the reason these very thin people are very thin, because now you've got an animal model backing up, you know, the um, big biobank data. So um, any thoughts on that, Mike? Yeah, I guess one of the questions I had is that any theories is what you would do to try to alter that? It seems super interesting from a pure kind of mechanistic standpoint, but I'm not sure what I would do 
do with that even if I wanted to play around with it. <laughs> yeah, well, like I said, some some level, I'm just completely wild, wildly speculating, but Gene, yeah. like a doping kind of thing or so, something to counter it, so maybe something to block its downstream. You know, what does, it, what does this gene lead to as far as what proteins get expressed in the cell? Maybe you block those, you know, yeah. uh, with a, a new drug, something like that. Anyway. Yeah, well, all the sort of targeted therapeutic quote-unquote fat loss things that we kind of isolated what the main effect was and then oops they had all these side effects and yeah just how complicated it is so it's probably just one little piece of the puzzle but it's still pretty interesting what they did yeah it's just i don't know it's interesting how they're targeting a specific gene and you're right i mean it's not like these are monogenic things right where one gene's controlling obesity you know or making you thin but this looks like i don't know it's interesting that they're they're just looking at you know what are lean people what are very thin low bmi people made of and can we take some clues from them i guess yeah and there's some theories that have been around for quite a while too looking at uh nervous system tone right so if you're overly parasympathetic that may be bad quote-unquote for body composition if you're more on the sympathetic side you know maybe because some of the mechanisms here that that may be a little bit better from body composition side but where actually do you want to be in that range is pretty pretty hard to say right you probably want a good of good amount of both and then it gets into timing and everything else too so right on one last one because it's going to it's going to set up a future episode. This was written by Kara Marker. CBD may reduce cytokine storm and lung inflammation in COVID-19. So mm. it's interesting because CBD is so popular. God, Mike, you and I have seen many talks, you more than I have, uh, yep. at meetings. Um, and uh, we have um, arranged to have Kara on the show actually coming up. So I, I thought this might be neat to get a science journalist uh, because I like what happens at Lab Roots. They get qualified people. There's a couple of their authors. I'm like, okay, good, right? This isn't an excited fitness person trying to uh, interpret something. Uh, anyway, basically, there's some basics about cannabidiol. So CBD may be effective at calming the immune system. It says researchers developed a mice model of acute respiratory distress syndrome, so ARDS. Obviously, this is something that people that get very sick, right, and they have a hyperactive immune response, a cytokine storm, uh, can end up with very inflamed lungs. They end up on a ventilator, you know, and a significant percentage of people, once they're on a vent, don't make it. I mean, that's a very severe um, scenario there. So it, it says, let's see, the about this mice model. The model replicates the classic symptoms of ARDS, importantly, including a phenomenon known as, again, here we go, the, the cytokine storm, that creates friendly fire in infected lungs and could lead to the need of a vent. Uh, oh, here she points out researchers estimate 30 to 50% of patients uh, who end up needing mechanical ventilation ultimately don't make it. So hmm. researchers gave CBD doses to uh, the mice mimicking, you know, in this model that mimicked severe COVID-19 symptoms. Um, they did, in fact, observe a variety of measurable changes. Reduced pro-inflammatory cytokines. Reduced temperature, improved blood oxygen. Hmm. So interesting stuff. Um, I've actually measured IL-6 myself in the lab before in TNF. So um, I'm sure it's along those lines. Less neutrophil invasion and all that sort of thing. Uh, down at the bottom, it seems that the timing of CBD dosing would be extremely important for research going forward. If provided too early in the infection process, the CBD could prevent the immune system from adequately protecting the body. And that would make sense, right? You don't want to calm your immune system out of the gate. You just don't want it going crazy uh, and overreacting with a cytokine storm later. So uh, I want to point out, I, I get these emails from the Canadian Nutrition Society, and they're always like, listen, there's no supplement or food that can stop you from getting COVID-19. Well, of course. Of course. Mm -hmm. But there is a list of things that I actually have. Maybe I'll share it in the future of if I get infected or one of my family, there are some nutritional things I'm going to do that I think could be supportive. Just supportive. Yeah. You know, everything from a little bit of MCTs to take, take some melatonin at night or, um, you know, try to keep up my 
strength, a little whey protein, fish oils. There's a lot of things that you can consider if you keep in mind, right, these aren't going to completely save your ass <laughs> kind of thing. So that's the research whirlwind. I'm glad I knocked down my, my stack here for everybody just to kind of share what's what's going on in the the health and physique stuff. So, Yeah, and shameless plug, if people are interested in CBD, THC, endocannabinoid system, I'm working on a formal education for that that'll probably be out, hopefully, if all goes well, later this year. So if people are interested, they can drop me an email and I can update them once it's out. But probably be like at least six months before I can get it done. So Okay. No, actually, that'd be excellent. When we have Kara on in coming weeks, uh, since she wrote this piece, you know, you guys can pick up the conversation a little bit. Yeah, because I've done a few talks on it and presented at AHS and different places over the last three years. And eh, was supposed to be doing an advisory role for a new magazine on it. But there, who knows, magazine industry is a little <laughs> up and down, especially now. But yeah, I think it's one of those areas where there's a lot of good information there's a lot of just absolutely horribly wrong information Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a super fascinating area because the endocannabinoid system regulates all sorts of things in the body so right i think it's an area that people are gonna want to be educated on it especially for doctors and practitioners and especially in canada and certain states in the u.s where it's becoming more legal too Right on. I, you know what? As I drive to work, I see these things literally stapled to telephone poles. Free oh, CBD yeah. samples. I mean, <laughs> few things has had this oh, kind yeah. of pen- market penetration. It, it, it behooves everybody to be educated on exogenous manipulation of this because this, this looks, looks like a, you know, the endocannabinoid system looks very complicated. And it's, I don't know, something you need to be aware of, I think, before you pick up yeah. your, your free samples and start plowing through them. Uh. I know. I get emails from people who are like, hey, check out our new CBD. We'll send you a free sample. It's like, ugh, the amount of time and effort it's going to take me to figure out if what you're actually putting in the bottle is actually in the bottle before I'm even going to consider taking it myself, much less recommend it to anybody else. I'm like, just just keep your samples. I already have a oh, couple right. sources, and I just don't have time to try to validate right with some so, Tom, Dick, and Harry wants to send me. Like, exactly. <laughs> you got like GMP sources, like something that's more, you know, they understand yeah. the, the process and the, yeah. what they're actually trying to create. You know, I think this has had, uh, not, again, we, we need to wrap, wrap up, but this has had market penetration more than something that took time, like creatine, right? We were hearing about creatine yeah. in sports settings for many years. Now most people are familiar. This has been more like, to me, ephedrine and the mini thins thing right from decades past because the gen pop has interest in it it's not just about athletic performance or something like that so it's just spread like wildfire way too fast uh for us to all play catch up you know yeah the fda has cracked down on a few places so far with that especially for claims but yeah that's what I get worried when anything goes a little bit too crazy, becomes too popular, especially a gray area like CBD, right? Because there's patents that have been issued on it and mm-hmm. all sorts of things that the FDA and people who own them could start uh, enforcing. And especially if the Department of Agriculture changes their ruling on what makes it legal as a supplement. Um yeah, I just get nervous that they're going to have the opposite reaction of, oh, now we got to make it illegal. It's like, well, right. hold on. <laughs> right. Yeah, I felt that way with ephedra, too. I mean, you, you with all the yeah, rumors about you. anonymous complaints to the FDA, and then people were, were uh, speculating that the FDA were basically making complaints to themselves to get it off the market. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, that stuff was not candy. <laughs> no. That's serious business, arrhythmias and all kinds of stuff, but um, – but yeah, you don't want this knee-jerk reaction in something that could actually have efficacy if it's used carefully, you know. So, all right. Yeah, my last comment on that is, unfortunately, now even in states where it's legal, there's some places that are extremely well done and extremely educated, um, and there's other places that are not. Right? It's just like. <laughs> Getting supplements and wandering into a big supplement store, you may get lucky and the person there may know a lot about what they're talking about. Or it may be an 18-year-old kid that's just trying to sell you whatever's on sale. Oh, totes. <laughs> totally. Yes. Yep. Yep. 
All right. All right, everybody. Well, that's going to be it, and we'll catch up with you next time. See ya. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, Knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.